Hey ho, let's go. This is 102.3 WHIV LPFM in New Orleans. We are reading all the HIV with programming. That's right, programming dedicated to human rights and social justice. WHIVFM.org. We honor independent voices. We are not a radio station with a mission. No, we are a mission with a radio station and all wars. You are listening to Resistance Radio. My name is Dr. Mark Alderi. Thank you for tuning in to another week of amazing talk and conversation. Uh, this week we have the amazing uh, uh, Dr. Trivia Fraser. It's an honor and pleasure to have her on for the hour. She's the CEO of Optala Sciences and you can find more information about Optala Sciences at optalasciences.com. And also they have a LinkedIn page which you can find as well, which is Optala Sciences. Dr. Fraser, it's such a pleasure to have you uh, here. Uh, today with us on Resistance Radio. Uh, thank you for uh, being here today. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me this afternoon. Thank you. The the honor is really the, the pleasure is mine. Um, you know, I always like to start off with kind of having uh, somebody, my guest, kind of usually somebody uh, with as, as distinguished as you are to help us understand what your trajectory was. Where are, I think you're originally from New Orleans, aren't you? Are you from New Orleans? Yes, I am. You are from New Orleans. So take us, walk us through growing up in New Orleans uh, and uh, education, uh, passion, studies, and then how you found yourself to be a CEO uh, and entrepreneur of this amazing startup uh, uh, biotech company that, uh, that you have founded. That every time I am scrolling in my uh, news feeds and stuff, I always see up to all the sciences pop up. So you're always doing this amazing stuff. And I think recently you had, I think this is public knowledge, I think you had a, uh, a major uh, investment uh, that uh, occurred recently as well. So we'll get to all that later. Let's talk a bit about you and how you got to where you are. Yes, yeah, sure. I'll be happy to. Uh, as, you, as you pointed out, I am a homegrown New Orleans native. Um, so of course, what comes with that is which high school did I go to? I went to St. Mary's Academy. Um, and it's, you know, it was essentially a great environment for me going to an all girls school. You get people who are on both sides of the coin, sort of like I hated it. I loved it. Um, but there was no pressure to impress, impress boys. There was no pressure to like, you know, do anything other than be me, be myself. And it was at that time that, um, in high school where I fell in love with, I, I say my first love was physics. Um, my high school teacher, physics teacher, she was just amazing. Black woman who was very straightforward. Um, she was, you know, she would get us like, you don't get this. This is so simple. It's really not that hard. And so the way she broke down the material, the way she explained it, um, I immediately fell in love and said, I want to major in physics. Wow. And it was, was it, did you know you were good at math at that time or was it was it calculus-based physics or or was it like non because pre-meds like us we did not take calculus-based physics pre-meds like us we were able to take the non-calculus like we just trusted the theorem was correct i knew that if i had a block <laughs> this big that weighed that much at that angle it would slide down at that speed we just had to know that much we did not have to figure out any derivatives or anything so in, in high school, you were you were good enough at math that you were like physics. It is. Yes, yes, That's and amazing. it's so crazy when I think back to it. Like it's not like if I didn't have classmates around me who were like, "What is wrong with you?" Um, but I still I just didn't have any preconceived notions, right? So if you don't know that it's hard, right. and you're not told that it's hard, and like I, math was just, I just loved math. So I was like, I can do this. Like I can do this. And it did. <laughs> so where did so, you end up going to college? Yes, I went to Dillard. I started uh -huh. out at Dillard HBCU, um, majored in physics, and I learned about this three-two dual degree program while I was there. Um, I liked physics, but I liked also the modern physics component. I was more drawn to that. But even more so, there was a physics pre-engineering major. And so it was sort of an opportunity to get, you know, introduced to 
um, just the engineering concepts where that sort of feeds in with the mathematical concepts that I loved and that, and that were at the heart of the physics equations. So ended up changing my major from straight physics to physics biomedical engineering. So I did the dual degree program between Dillard and Tulane. Um, that was oddly enough, the first semester, my first full semester was a semester of Hurricane Katrina. And so uh, the first full semester at Tulane. Um, and so I was, I basically had to sit out that first semester um, that I was doing the joint classes and ended up coming back, taking classes in a hotel, living in a, um, a trailer in front of my, my parents' house, trying to help you know, rebuild and put the house together. Um, and so I remember just being so emotionally drained at that time, but still feeling so incredibly driven to finish on time. Like I was just focused to graduate on time. Why? I don't know. Retrospectively, it was like, it really didn't matter to you. Like, just take a breath. But I was, you know, one of those students that was like, I gotta finish on time. It doesn't matter. Like I set out a semester. Um, Wow. So, so, hold on. so you set out a semester, but you ended up taking more classes in the other semesters just so that you, when you say you finished on time, you're not saying you finished in like eight or 12 or however many semesters or four years to, right. Yeah. No, you're saying you wanted to finish, even though you missed the semester, you still wanted to finish in what ordinarily would have been graduation had yes. there not been Katrina. Wow. Yes. Wow. Wow give you an idea of what that means the semester that I came back all right my junior year I was taking um 12 courses 12 hours of courses at Tulane and I got an approval and override to take 24 hours at Dillard okay for, so for a total of 36 hours yes the hotel, when Dillard was at the hotel, the Hilton Hotel, Riverside, between that, you know, taking these like super advanced, like senior level courses and, and taking my, my first junior level engineering courses at Tulane. Um, it was insane. And I would, this older trivia would tell the younger trivia again, just like, relax, it's okay. It's okay. You, you think that younger trivia would have listened? No. <laughs> no. She didn't. She she wouldn't have listened. <laughs> um, and then obviously, uh, obviously you 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 finished up on time. <laughs> I did. <laughs> did you sleep? <laughs> Every now and then. Every now and then. <laughs> so the typical college experience. Uh, again, you know, you went to an all-girls high school. You took yeah. 36 hours a, a, a semester. So again, the the pressures of regular college life just wasn't there for you. Ever. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was uh, the madness of me, you know, pursuing physics and biomedical engineering at the same time. But I'll also say, I'll also say that um, it made me an incredible incredibly like just resistant kind of person like you know like I I do have some grit you know you start to realize <laughs> what the limits are at that time right putting yourself through those types of things um after so so just to sort of continue with that um my junior year of the biomedical engineering program we were at the time at Tulane it was one of the few programs that uh, that had a requirement for the, the seniors to uh, do a thesis. And we, the program was just launching a, a four plus one master's program. So I was deciding, do I want to stay another year for a master's or just do a master's level thesis? So to just add on to that, because I wasn't doing anything, right? Right, right. Um, you you yeah. weren't busy enough already, right? Yeah, well, I wasn't, I wasn't, I wasn't busy no, I was a slacker. Um, to add to that, I basically decided to do research 
in a laboratory and and do a master's level thesis while I was sort of wrapping up my my capstone courses. While you were doing thirty six hours a uh, uh, a semester, what were you? What was the research project you looked into? So I the reason why I decided to stay home and and go to college here um, is because my mother has Paget's disease, and so. I was learning, I wanted to learn more about it, you know, being a, uh, having a strong genetic component, but also having a higher prevalence in older Caucasian males. And she was diagnosed with it at, at the age of 36 as a young black female. I was like, what is going on here? And so what I found out was there's a percentage of Paget's disease patients that develop osteosarcoma and that there were researchers who were working downtown at the School of Medicine who were working in osteosarcoma. And so I ended up uh, with a project that was looking at the impact of, of different uh, um, antioxidants on osteosarcoma in mice. So I was looking at a murine model um, of bone cancer with and without stem cells that were derived from bone marrow um, primarily. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry, just to be clear, Paget's disease, um, if I remember correctly, has something to do with it, the interruption of developing new bone. Is, is that yes. correct? Yes, the remodeling process is interrupted. So there is, isn't that balance. So yeah, do you want to explain how new and old bone gets, um, because I think that's in context of what we're talking about right now. Um, there's always old, new bone is always, is there's always old bone and new bone, right? So new bone- yes. It, there's always a remodeling process. You look at a bone, but we see a bone as a skeleton and it looks, it's dried up and it's solid and it looks very much like a skeleton, right? But right. bone in a living organism is quite literally alive, right? And it's got its own blood flow. The immune system, at least in mammals, come from the long bones. Uh, and so this process of, de of, of bone, it's like new skin, like skin shedding and then new skin developing. Yes, exactly. It's actually, as you, as you describe it, is very alive and it's constantly changing. Um, and it's constantly changing in response to a number of, of signals, which can be environmental, they can be imposed uh, biomechanical based on, you know, how much exercise we do, or we choose not to exercise uh, that balance between you know, what our body needs at the time in response to the types of, of nutrients we're giving ourselves or, or not. Um, and that changes with age. So those are compounding factors as well. Um, and it's known that as we get older, we start to what's, you know, we're calling it losing bone, osteoporosis, um, and, and sort of that being a response to the loss of some of the more mechanical cues that we would provide less activity, you know, sort of responding to that as well. Um, but in a patient with Paget's disease, even in, in a case where they're continuing to be active, they are still losing bone. Um, and in this case, and my mom did develop this as well, there's still the development of osteoporosis and osteoarthritis. So there is an inflammatory response from your own immune cells, you know, against your joints, even though, you know, you technically have not aged to that point. Um, you technically have not lost that activity with respect to you just constantly being active as a younger person. Um, and so, that was something that was very interesting to me. And I, I wanted to know, well, you know, if there's a chance of, of developing this cancer and we don't know much about it, we don't have very good uh, therapies. The, the, uh, the medications that were administered, um, bisplatin, cisplatin, um, those things were discovered like 70 years before I even started researching you know what osteosarcoma was, which which is which is the bone cancer that bone. we're talking about. Hang on one quick second. If you're tuned in, you are listening to 102.3 WHIV LP FM in New Orleans. My name is Dr. Mark Allen Derry. Uh, this is Resistance Radio. It's a true uh, honor and pleasure to have Dr. Trivia Fraser from Optala Sciences. She's the CEO of Optala Sciences, which is an amazing biotech uh, company uh, that was founded here in New Orleans by Dr. Fraser 
more information can be found about Abtal Sciences at abtalsciences.com. And they have a LinkedIn page with the same thing, Abtal Sciences uh, as well. Dr. Frazier, continue. So we were, you were talking about the osteosarcoma that develops. And just real quick, before you finish that thought, how is it that the, what is the pathogenesis of the osteosarcoma that develops? I mean, it's kind of funny that you have Paget's disease, which is a disease that, that's bone destruction, but cancer is basically uh, cells that are stimulated to grow. So yeah. what's that pathogenesis there that you have destruction of bone cells, but then the creation of cancer cells that are a function of those bone cells uh, that then grow, uh, you know, I always say anarchy, but cells have rules. Cancer cells don't have any rules whatsoever. Do you understand, yeah. do you understand what I'm asking? Does that make sense? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And at the core of that, what we felt at the time and what we're continuing to understand is the role of the stem cell that is present within the bone and the bone marrow. Um, that stem cell and just sort of the basic, basic qualification for a stem cell is a cell that has the ability to form other cells that are just like themselves, just new stem cells. Uh, we, we call that um, the, the ability to uh, clonally different, to form other clones. So this a stem cell at its heart can either form new cells that are, they're committed to a specific pathway and they will function that way or their, or their environment will tell them, okay, just stop growing. This is what I want you to do. This is the end. Um, but a stem cell can, form one of those cells or it can form another one by like itself, a clone, right? Um, that's one of the, the classifications of a, stem cell, of a stem cell, besides that differentiation and that clonal ability to basically form new cells. And so what happens is the checkpoints that are in place to tell these cells to stop forming more clones and to stop forming more cells, it's disrupted. And that allows this growth. So one of the unique features about osteosarcoma as a stromal originating cancer is that the cells, the stem cells within the stromal compartment are what are giving rise to that cancer, that tumor within the bone. And so the cells that are constantly growing of course, being in the environment by which there's this mechanical cue, they are being induced to form bone. The other ones that are forming more clones because they're not told to stop, they're just growing out of control, they're forming more stem cells, which can form more bone cells. And so with osteosarcoma, it grows to this mass within the bone by which the center is cut off from a blood supply, it becomes dead or necrotic, and then the rest just continues to grow. Um, sometimes, of course, well, a lot of times within the younger generation, it ends up being the mortality rate isn't isn't as good with respect to, you know, that that response. But, you know, that was sort of the premise for me understanding how do stem cells behave? What are stem cells? Right. And wanting to learn more about the the stem cells role within cancer and what kinds of agents, what kinds of molecules can we use to attack the cancer. And that's what my undergraduate thesis was about. It was essentially looking at different antioxidants that can treat osteosarcoma. Um, there's oh, so much I want to ask you. <laughs> amazing story. This is why I love to have people on. It's so amazing. All right. First of all, um, how did you go from physics to engineering to, to buy to, to, to the medical sciences? Like yeah. that is an amazing jump. I mean, Here's one minute you're talking about, you're figuring out how to like, you know, make sure that a bridge is intact and, and, and the structural, you know, and, uh, uh, yeah. the structural function of the bridge is intact to now looking at whether or not the, a cell has an inhibitory mechanism on it so that it stops growing. Uh, that's, that's a remarkable jump because you will find most people can probably in physics can easily jump into medicine, but people who are in medicine do not jump into <laughs> It does not go in that direction. Like I said at the top of the hour, doctors take take uh, physics that are not calculus based. So it is a that's an amazing jump that you made. Uh, real quickly, can you just square that circle for me? I tried to get engineering there for you. So. <laughs> 
my, my first research experience, which is when I fell in love with research, was at Dillard. And that was um, working on this project, basically being introduced to the world of lasers, um, laser system optics. And it was Dr. Darwish. I, I remember being trained with Dr. Darwish. He reinforced, you know, not just being a part of something, but really learning about, you know, what it is, getting to the core and, and actually following what excites you. One of the projects that I had the opportunity to work on during that introductory summer was using lasers or applying lasers to treat skin cancer, to remove skin cancer. And that was the start of me wow. being introduced to biological cells, to sure. tissue, and the interaction between high energy beams and, and biological components, biological elements. I totally um, get it. Yeah, it's like, it totally whoa. Sense. That's where physics literally meets the, that's where physics meets biology. Yes. I, I, I totally, totally see that. And then of course, as, as you shared, your mother had Paget's. And so the fact that there was a Paget's uh, research um, a lab at Tulane where you were getting your engineering degree, that totally, totally makes sense. Um, let me ask you this, does Paget's disease always lead to osteosarcoma? Is that like a, always like an end? like an end run of, of pageants or, or? No, no. Um, in fact, now, I think the, the most recent numbers are it's only 2%, two to okay. maybe a max of 5% of the patients that have uh, Paget's disease develop osteosarcomas. And um, it is more within the aging population. So those that reach their seventies and beyond. Yeah. Right. And, and I, I will say, you know, I'm so happy. We're so blessed. My mom did not develop that, nor any of the deformities that would accompany the loss of bone. Um, so, you know, Thank goodness. yeah, yeah. Thank goodness. I would imagine that it's probably somewhat still very, and we don't need to talk about your mom's experience, but if I could kind of anticipate that this is a disease that uh, is accompanied by a significant amount of pain. Yeah. Um, discomfort, uh, you, uh, and then also fractures, uh, yeah. walking the wrong way. I, 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 I missed a step uh, today walking out of a room and somebody with Paget's disease that would have possibly resulted in a, in a fractured uh, a long bone, uh, uh, toe, foot, or what have you. So uh, I would imagine that people with Paget's are not yes. in contact sports. <laughs> it's probably a lot of yoga. Yeah. It's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> tackle football is definitely not there with, uh, with, with and I'm not I'm not making light of course of, of no but yes yes that is very true that so is. so that is amazing so I mean obviously so now we're getting into how you founded Uptala Scientist because you then ultimately started working with stem cells I, I don't want to speak on your behalf uh, uh, so you uh, so you did your doc you're not your your doctoral thesis Silly me. You did <laughs> undergrad thesis on what was it again, the amazing undergrad thesis that you did? We were looking at the effects of antioxidants and we ultimately ended up focusing on curcumin um, as, as a therapeutic uh, compound with osteosarcoma. So looking at its impact and we tied in the physics by adding these miniature osmotic pumps that were constantly diffusing the uh, curcumin liposomes. So these nanospheres that contained curcumin into directly into a tumor that the mice had that we induced within uh, new mice. How did, you, how did you induce those pumps that allowed for that to happen? Yeah, there are miniature, I mean, technology is just amazing, but oh, there right. are these <laughs> miniature osmotic pumps that, and essentially it allows an osmosis, a constant moving of the, the uh, compounds or whatever, whatever is put into whatever them. You're looking to right now. Um, but it's connected by a tiny catheter. The tiny catheter was essentially- Come on, so let me just be very clear. You yeah. had a cell. Yeah. So you weren't genetically modifying the cell. You were literally taking a cell and you were under some very powerful microscope, I'm sure, uh, sticking a, a, a micro, like a, like a, like a, a, a catheter into that, into that. Oh, no, no. So yeah, that would be just 
that I don't know. Yeah, that would just be amazing. So we. <laughs> All right, I'm 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 a fan of, okay. Take me down out of fantasy land. Yes. Totally. Let me bring you back to the, the physics-based world again. I'm sorry. So what we did was we induced osteosarcoma, just injected cancerous cells into the bone. We drilled a hole into the bone, the femur of mice. Um, I, I, I had to do some of that research too. I, I have my own story that I, I looked at and I, I have this same response. So I, I feel you. So, yeah. So, you know, yeah. yeah, I feel you. I totally feel you. Yeah. Um, and so after the bone formed, we then um, created an incision on the back, the dorsal subcutaneous, basically um, had a tiny pump that contained these curcumin liposomes. Um, and we implanted that pump into the back of the mice and then connected the bottom of the pump as it, there was an opening essentially for the, the therapy to come out uh, via catheter, basically tied it to the surface of that bone by which the cancer was forming. And uh, we then monitored those mice via imaging, similar to PET scans, uh, what would be done, but this was a fluorescence-based imaging since the liposomes were also fluorescent. Um, and so that we didn't put the pump into the cells, that would just be probably miraculous, but we did put it into the mice and then monitor that. And we were trying to mimic a continuous infusion of the therapy over time. So there are pumps that would allow um, a, a diffusion over a certain timeline, um, a certain volume, those types of things you can control for pretty well right now. Um, but back then it was sort of let's implant it right. continuous over a certain period of time and then stop. So what were the results? I'm like sitting on the edge of my seat, literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the curcumin was one of nine compounds that actually was effective at reducing the growth of the tumors over time in terms of, so you know, there's sort of the impact with respect to the tumor growth and you know how fast it grows, uh, the volume, the resulting volume, but also there is an impact on the side of, re of shrinking the tumor sizes. Um, and so that was something that was pretty impactful for me to get out of that study. So whenever my family members call me up and say, oh yeah, I'm thinking of taking turmeric. I'm like, yep, go for it, go for it. <laughs> So let me ask you this, not all anti, and I promise you, we'll, 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 I'll, I'll leave the subject. It's so fascinating. Two more questions. Not all antioxidants are the same. How, why are some antioxidants affect, you said there was nine compounds. Why were, like, what is it biochemistry or the physics in an antioxidant that allows for some to work and then some not to work? Yeah. So the, what I was diving into was the mechanisms of action of curcumin. The ones that we looked at were endocarbonyl, uh, which is found in cabbage and uh, green leafy vegetables, resveratrol, which is in, in wine, red wine or red grapes, uh, the skin of the grapes, um, uh, uh, ginseng, we were looking at that, um, a number of compounds that were naturally occurring, um, but they worked through different mechanisms of action. And you know we know the, that there's sort of this understanding of um, reducing the, the formation of, of uh, free radicals uh, from the antioxidants in the name, but they also have very specific mechanisms of action that are directly correlated to their structure. And so curcumin acts on what's called a, in, um, an AMPK I don't want to dive too deep into the bio, the um, biochemistry, Please. but I live I live the Krebs cycle. Like in my first year of medical, it's hard <laughs> to sound like you're getting into Krebs cycle stuff, and I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> but it activates a pathway that um, is distinct in terms of the the ultimate sort of activation of of um, of and secretion of proteins that are then working directly on the site, at that site. Um, and it's, you know, what we're thinking is that pathway, which is different from all of the other antioxidants that we studied, 
it's unique to turmeric to that root wow. that allows it to do that. Wow, wow, wow. And then, uh, well, let me do a quick station ID. If you're tuned in, you are listening to 12.3 WHIV uh, FM. This is uh, Resistance Radio. My name is uh, Mark Allendary. It's an honor and a pleasure uh, to be talking to the amazing Dr. Trivia Frazier, who's the CEO and founder of Apollo Sciences. More information can be found at apollosciences.com, and they do uh, have a social media uh, presence at LinkedIn, which you can find them at Aptala Sciences. So when you wrote your uh, uh, undergraduate thesis, did you write the thesis in terms of, and this is just pure curiosity, was your thesis on the results or was the thesis specifically, or was it the development of the project? I mean, because you, you went to college for four years, you took at one point up to 36 hours of, of a semester. You had Katrina that came right in the middle of all of this. Yeah. You were living on a trailer in front of your parents' property, re yeah. helping to rebuild your parents' house. Yeah. What did you also like? Were you an Olympic fencer as well? Like, how did you have time? To, <laughs> like, this is amazing. I'm just, I'm super curious. Just what did you focus your 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 thesis on? It's so fascinating for me. Yeah, it was both the the the. the uh, the as well as the results and um you know i decided that actually made me fall in love with stem cell research Got it. Um, wanting to, of course and i took the traditional academic route after that i went straight in for my doctorate um at the school of medicine at tulane at, at tulane uh -huh. at the tulane school of medicine and focused my my uh dissertation on understanding how stem cells work, how they respond. Where, what lab were you in? Where were you working? Because yeah. at that point, our paths crossed because I was at the School of Medicine at that point. So oh, I'm yeah. Curious. yeah, I'm curious, where, where were you? Yeah, so I was in structural and cellular biology in Brian Rowan's lab. So he was a breast cancer uh, biologist. Got it, got it. I think, was somebody named Port uh, a lab tech at that point with you by any chance? Or? At Latanya, okay. um, yeah, Latanya Carrier. Got it. Okay. Yeah. So then you went straight, and then so you were studying stem cells essentially yep. uh, at, at Tulane. And what did you focus on your, your dissertation uh, uh, on? Yeah. So I was looking at the um, the behavior of <coughs> adipose derived stromal stem cells, just been characterized as a cell population. Um, that is an alternative to bone marrow derived stem cells, probably were reaching 15, no, 10 years actually at that point. Um, so I was helping to, to basically describe those cells and, and um, help to define their functionality under um, pro-inflammatory conditions. So I was looking at um, how the cells respond to a, a pro-inflammatory environment like breast cancer. What happens in that environment? Are they contributing to the growth of the breast cancer because the breast does contain a large, of course, amount of fatty tissue? Um, are, they, are they helping with the recurrence? Because recurrence at that time was, was really, really big. And more so when a surgeon goes to reconstruct a breast and uses adipose from a distal site, is that contributing to the recurrence? Uh, that that patients are you know suffering from have been suffering from many times for which we haven't found a solution, um, and that what I you know was able to find out at that time was not only are the cells interrupting the the process of the breast cancer growth, but there's depending on the the right cues that are at that microenvironment present in that, in that microenvironment, those cells are either going to promote that tumor or they're going to activate the T cells that are there. Those T cells that are there within adipose, there are resonant adipose derived, uh, adipose resident T cells that are naive that can either perform in a regulatory activity and, and work to suppress, or they can act in more of a, a helper response. Um, these are T cells that you would find in the in the general innate immune system. Yes, these are the same T cells. Okay, yes. so so yes. what what micro cues or what cues enable or do we know at this point what stimulates a T cell in adipose breast tissue to either serve as a stimulant or an inhibitor? Yes, 
the thing that that was so uh, so surprising to me was in the presence of interferon gamma, which is one of the most commonly secreted pro-inflammatory factors in a pro-inflammatory pro environment uh, when there's a lot of you know, inflammation in general. Um, it's one of the more common, common uh, molecules. Well, in the presence of interferon gamma, adipose derived stromal stem cells act somewhat as an antigen presenting cell in that they are binding to the T cells. Huh. They are acting, they're they causing those T cells to upregulate interleukin 2. They're upregulating expression of CD4, interleukin 25, and, and, and decreasing their expression of CD127. How those ASCs are doing that, that is what we didn't know. It's like, what is going on here? Are they secreting factors? Now, TGF beta is one of those factors that is thought to act on a naive T cell that can do that, that can sort of stimulate that type of activity um, where we know as soon as interleukin-2 is being secreted from that cell, it's going to upregulate the receptor, it's going to start, um, it's going to start differentiating, it will go down that path, um, that activation path, whether it's one of the four paths of a T cell, um, that we understand, or at least a CD4 positive T cell. But it, you know, in terms of which of the factors that were secreted, those cells were secreting an abundance of factors. But we didn't know which of them it was actually as, you know, inducing that response. We narrowed it down to one of a few, and TGF beta stood out as one of them. But it wasn't confirmed, it's just the data suggested that. Wow, and and uh, that is that's fascinating. It's uh, you know, and I I I kept up with I think seventy percent of it. Although it, the immune system is something that I'm supposed to be an expert in, but uh, <laughs> my, my immune my immune knowledge ends at CD4 expressing T cells because that's where HIV lives, and then everything beyond that I, I I leave to the smart folks like you. Let me ask you this: I I um I. I'm uh, on staff at a hospital that does a lot of breast reconstruction surgery here locally. Um, and so I'm curious to know, uh, and I, I'm the infectious disease doctor that comes in and, and helps out uh, postoperatively. These surgeons are amazing. They have very, very low rates of, 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 um, of uh, infectious complications. But what was the result of what happens when they take adipose tissue from, usually they take it from a thigh or they take it from a buttocks or, and they use it to reconstruct the breast after bilateral or unilateral mastectomy. But now I think it's pretty much bilateral. So what did you find with that, the reconstruction? Uh, did that adipose tissue that came from another site, once it got placed in the breast where I'm sure those micro um, uh, cues are, even though no matter how much you can try to, you know, I'm sure that they do a process by they try to, you know, eliminate as much of those cells as possible or yeah. what have you, but it's just like a prion. Once one prion touches another cell, it'll immediately force that cell, that protein to conform to the original prion confirmation. So yeah. was the same thing found in the adipose tissue that got replaced when a, a breast surgeon was reconstructing a breast after a mastectomy? The data suggested that the cells that are put there, so there's a process called cell-assisted lipotransfer by which adipose is removed from a, a, the thigh, you know, or distal site. Um, half of it is taken and implanted, uh, injected at, for reconstruction, but that half, the other half rather, is, is uh, actually separated out for the, the stem cells to be concentrated. So it's just concentrating the cells, the stem cells, adding them to that and injecting that in the breast. There was data that suggested that that process, that, those, that adipose was contributing to reconstruct, I mean, excuse me, to recurrence within 12 months post-surgery. Um, but- Why are they still doing it? What is it? Why are they still doing it then? Well, the thing is, I, you know, well, let me ask you this. Was it, was it adipose tissue that still had a blood flow? Because I know now that they're creating, they're creating blood flow, which is something that's fairly new. So I'm wondering if that's what the difference is. That's the difference. So some of it were, um, and these were mi micro vesicles, right. you know, on the basis of the size of the cannula, right. That was used for the injection. Um, but the thing is it, it wasn't conclusive. Right, so you know, having having recurrence but not having conclusive data that's validated, as we know, um, you know, 
it, a process will not stop in the in the absence of having that. Got it. So you so dissertation done. It technically was in what in uh, in, in molecular biology or in, in molecular. I love it. You started off as physics, went into engineering, and then got into stem cells and molecular biology. Awesome. Okay. So, so where I can't believe we're still talking about your life. This is awesome. <laughs> um, this is awesome. This is the best interview because I, your life is completely intertwined with with what you did. Your accomplishments and your careers is amazing. Okay. So you uh, did you know? So what were in your head? You were like working on your dissertation. You were doing these amazing research. You were working on breast cancer. Um, at that point, where were, where were you talking? What were you thinking about doing? What were next steps for you? And it, it, did you know that you were going to become an entrepreneur and you were going to start like, like, so what were you, so like at that point, cause I remember when I was in that same situation, your next thought is getting a job at a university and continuing on with the research that you started. That's yep. the traditional pathway. And the idea of not doing academics is like, whoa, that is like a big deal. And for me personally, I had to be literally dragged out of academics after being an academic my whole life. I think I got dragged out of it. I'm 52. I left academics at like 49. Um, and so, and that was a very hard thing for me to do because everything in the, was still university and, and academic based. So, but how did you, so I'm, a tis, I'm, in, I'm assuming you were probably thinking about the same thing. What, what, how did that shift happen? What happened? Where, how did you, how did you end up developing Aptala Sciences? Yeah, yeah, I had no idea that I would be in entrepreneurship. I had no idea that I would go into business. Um, as you indicated, you know, it was one of those things where it's almost drilled into you, you know, academia, um, you, you go and you teach. While I was working on my, my doctorate, I was teaching, you know, I was TAing, I was, and I volunteered to do it. Like, do I really wanna do this? Let me do it another semester. Do I really wanna do this? You know, it's sort of one of those things. Um, but I did it. I did a postdoc at Pennington. I went on and, and was teaching at my alma mater. So I actually had a, um, a, a um, tenure track position at Dillard. Um, and, but during that time, I continued to collaborate with my postdoc advisor, Jeff Gimbel. We continued to co-publish together. We were designing experimental grants together. And he was running a company. He wrote a book about academia to biotech and back. So that was his thing. He knew about that transition. He was running a company while being a professor at Pennington. And so while we continue to collaborate, he applied for this grant through the National Sciences Foundation to commercialize what I was doing as a postdoc. And- Hold on, what, what were you doing as a postdoc then? Yes, yeah, so I was basically demonstrating that there are truly stem cells in fact. There was a question, are the cells that we're characterizing, the cells that I studied as a, as a researcher, are they truly stem cells? Well, let me ask you this. So you using the word fat cells there, when you were, uh, when you were doing your dissertation, you were using adipose tissue. Yes. Are you, are you drawing a difference between the two types of cells? No, so okay. adipose, yeah. So I was using adipose and fat interchangeably. Okay, got it. But but you knew already that stem cells were already in adipose tissue. Yeah, so, so in terms of their behavior, right? So uh, okay, got it, got it. There's an entire there was an entire base of uh, in the literature that was questioning: Are these truly stem cells, or are they blood cell blood supporting cells called parasites? Um, really? And called parasites. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I'm like, cool. <laughs> yes, but peri, like surrounding, right? Oh, Not P A R I. Okay. No, no, no. P E R I. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> So, it, so this goes back to what you talked about at the top of the hour about giving a basic definition of what a stem cell does. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. Demonstrating that these, there were cells that actually reside in adipose or fat tissue 
that can not only give rise to new cells, so from a parent become, you know, forming a daughter cell that's functional, but also can self-renew, can form another cell that is essentially a clone. Splitting image can form other cells and grow. And so we were demonstrating that there not only are stem cells in adipose tissue, no matter where they came from, whether they originated in adipose or they came from bone marrow and, and sort of landed there and made themselves happy and, and healthy, but they contributed to a functional tissue. So we could use those cells, take those cells, isolate them from, from adipose tissue and implant them into an animal with a biological material and that would regrow new tissue just from those stem cells. So, yeah, so hold on, I'm sorry, let me put a pin in that right there. Is one of the reasons why you wanna go down this path is that traditionally stem cells were originally taken, uh, uh, or at least my very pedestrian rudimentary understanding of stem cells, especially early stem cell research was taken uh, either from uh, 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 at the uh, umbilical cord when blood, blood is led at the umbilical cord or what have you. And then that became a process that was somewhat politicized. So yeah. is, is some of this research a, a way of answering the ability to develop stem cells, but without having to deal with some of the um, some of the uh, politics, I guess, if you will, that is associated with some of the more traditional ways of developing stem cells? Yes, absolutely. What you're referring to um, back then, you know, the embryonic stem cell was isolated from the blastocyst and there was a lot of controversy around that. And in stem cell research, the embryonic stem cell was even banned by President George H. Bush. Yes. Um, right? And, President Obama lifted that ban, but we continued, we, we demonstrated that adipose, which is a very abundant tissue, yes. it has been thought of as just a filler, just to like take up space, just to accumulate fat for so many years, but actually it's an abundant source of stem cells. And so we were funded to basically make tissue deposits like models of tissue using these stem cells and to do that and commercialize that as a technology. That's amazing. So then that was how you founded that. So it was your mentor at Pennington then that, that took the research that you had started and developed and went to commercialize it because there was clearly a commercial a need for work like this. So right. one quick question before we get into what Abtala does, how did you come up with the name Abtala Sciences? Just Abtala. Yes. Yes, so Obatala or Obatala in, in Yoruban is a Western, Afri uh, a Western African deity that uh, the story goes, Obatala was tasked with forming the human body using naturally occurring materials, clay and mud. So just took clay and mud and formed the human body. And what we're doing is we're using naturally occurring biological materials to mimic tissues of the body and our focus is going, moving away from the animals, taking it back to the human, forming tissues of the human body without testing in humans. And so we named it after Obatala. Obatala. And, and am I pronouncing wrong when I say Obatala or? Yes, yes, yes. So okay. your Rubens are not offended. Okay. <laughs> when say Obatala. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, very respectful. Um, of, of West African culture as I'm half Nigerian. Got so, it. Yeah. And, and also just to let you know that my, uh, uh, my parents are both from, from North Africa, from Morocco, which is the Western side of, uh, of, uh, of Africa. So my, my French and my last name, whenever I go and I do work, whenever I respond to epidemics or whatever down in West Africa, my French and my last name buy me a lot of West African currency because uh, <laughs> yeah. dairy is known. And then my French accent is the same French uh, in the French speaking countries uh, uh, as well. Okay. Um, so right. then, so you started, you started, uh, now I don't even want to say, cause I want Obatala sciences uh, <laughs> and, um, with the idea of what then taking stem cell to mass produce them so that you could sell them to scientists or yeah. researchers, or, or what was the, what, what was the, the premise or the dream at this point? Yeah. Yeah. We founded Obatala sciences with the goal of 
providing an alternative method for testing in humans without testing in humans. So that means being able to mass produce stem cells, but also a hydrogel or a matrix, something that keeps those cells happy, healthy, and growing in three dimensions and allows them to function the way they would inside the body. And we call that our fat on a chip. So we basically mix cells from fat, stem cells from fat with a blood derived hydrogel that we manufacture on site. When those cells and that hydrogel mix together, the cells remodel that matrix and they start to behave the way they would inside the body. But then we induce the adipose function by essentially adding a cocktail of molecules. But that is essentially what we founded Obatala to do to make human tissue models so that drug developers could have a more accurate testing model, a more accurate testing method when they're at the preclinical stage of testing. Um, the problem is, you know, you don't get information about safety and efficacy of a compound until you are in human clinical trials. Otherwise, the data that is, is received is from animal studies. And it's so many times what we've heard from folks who are developing compounds to target obesity, to target diabetes, hey, this axis is activated in the mouse, but we can't prove it in the humans. We don't have a way to do that. And so what we're doing, we're providing a bridge between testing cells in a dish and testing in the human by bringing a model that brings that information faster, safer, um, and, and pretty much cheaper. So I, I, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm sure I'm wrong, but you know, I can't help but think that, are you basically doing something that you're stepping away from heal, what we traditionally refer to HeLa cells? I mean, are you, are you doing something that, that allows, and maybe I'll just, you know, quickly, or do you want to quickly explain the HeLa cells and how that was, you know, uh, yes. uh, in the front? Uh, certainly yes. this is another in the long, uh, <laughs> in the, the long shadow of, uh, of exploitation of, of black and brown bodies, uh, medical, uh, the medical exploitation of black and brown bodies in, the, in this case uh, of black bodies, but Henrietta Lacks and how her cells were exploited. And it seems like, I'll let you actually describe to our listening audience. Yes, absolutely. As you were, you know, so poignantly going to, in terms of that direction, describing the situation in which Miss Henrietta Lacks, her cells were removed from her body. Well, at least she didn't know that the cells were being used, would be used for research to really help with so many fundamental discoveries uh, that have happened <laughs> just over decades. Mm -hmm. um, and, and you know, the, the famous HeLa cell is a cell that has been used as a control a cell you know, that is, has been present as a baseline in terms of how a cell will function um, in many cancer studies, in many um, normal physiological studies that are comparing you know, a, a, um, a carcinoma to a normal cell. Um, but the fact that it was done without her, you know, her approval, without her knowledge, uh, without her consent, exactly. Um, and so what you're saying and to be clear, she was a black, she was a black woman, a black woman. And, uh, uh, living in Baltimore, went to Hopkins. She had like stage four cervical cancer. Yes. They scraped uh, the cells from her cervix for a biopsy. The biologist came back a week later and found the cells growing massively when these cells are very difficult to, to grow <laughs> traditionally. And, yeah. and where the virus, the HPV virus landed on the, in the, the, and her DNA landed on a gene that promoted growth. And once it gets turned on, it never turns off. And so that's why these cells are so, uh, uh, so ubiquitous. From, I heard everything from IV fluids to Band-Aids and everything in between have uh -huh. utilized HeLa cells. And it seems like what you're doing, and this is like amazing, it's a whole other dimension that never occurred to me is that you're stepping away from these traditional HeLa cells and, and doing it in a way um, that is scientifically derived, but without having to, to utilize those HeLa cells that were again taken without 
her consent or her family's consent. And the family was really quite shocked when they found out about all that it was a tremendous book written about it. And just to say it only took like 40, 50, 60 years for Hopkins to admit their wrongdoing and have named a research building after her in which they also placed a very large bronze statue of Miss, Miss Henrietta Lacks uh, in, the, in that building. Yeah, yeah, the, you know, the point that you bring up about the patient informed consent um, and that not being a part of the process because it was thought, well, she... Right, right, it was, yeah, yeah. it's, yeah. I, I'm actually writing a book about this right now. That's why I'm here in Pennsylvania is looking at exactly that, is that how was it that it, doctors in those days, and I'm obviously starting with Tuskegee, but of course, uh, 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 Miss Henrietta Lacks is a huge part of it as well. And, you know, it was it's, it's beyond racism and what, you know, and we can talk, it's a whole other, let's talk about you. <laughs> uh, but it, it, it's a, yes, and there's a lot in it. And it's, and it certainly has a lot to do with what we're seeing right now as we record this with coronavirus and vaccine hesitancy, uh, specifically uh, in, in the black community that comes from these uh, ter terrible past history of, of exploitation and, and the, the final premise of my book is that uh, is that we need to do something that I refer to as medical reparations uh, okay. and that needs to happen immediately. I haven't quite defined what medical reparations are. I see it in my head, but I don't quite, <laughs> I don't quite. Uh, but listen, uh, uh, Dr. Frazier, we have just a couple minutes left. Um, you are a tremendous uh, uh, inspiration. I mean, the the, the tie-in with, with Henrietta Lacks now and, and the refusal to use those traditional HeLa cells, um, and of course, uh, you carry on the the, the legacy of greatness uh, uh, in you. I, I just I know this is a hard question for me to ask because I know it's going to be a hard question for you to answer. But if you could just a bit, my colleague Doc Griggs talks a lot about his 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 inspiration into young black children, and he uses himself. Uh, as an inspiration. And part of my idea of medical reparations is that we need to uh, get uh, uh, communities that have traditionally been uh, overlooked, uh, especially particularly black and brown communities. Uh, and, uh, and we need to make sure that they see, like yourself, you said that your physics teacher was a black teacher. That was, that was something for you. Uh, Dr. Kizmikia Corbet, who is at the NIH, um, which by the way, if you know her, we're trying to get on our show. So I don't know if you do any NIH, <laughs> but, but she talks about her third grade teacher being a black teacher. Uh, uh, Vice President Harris spoke about uh, the study that showed that if black children see black teachers, two black teachers, by the time they reach uh, uh, a middle school, that the likelihood of getting to college is significantly increased. So I know we have like a minute or two left and we could probably write a book about this, but can you talk a bit about your, the, the, what your career and how you use that to inspire uh, other folks as well? Oh, yes, you are right. This is a... <laughs> yes, I ask that we have like less than a minute. I'm so sorry. I'll, I'll definitely bring you back on to finish us off. I'm sorry, but... <laughs> I should have I should have opened with this. I'm sorry. Yeah, maybe you should have opened with that one. But definitely <laughs> wouldn't have answered your other questions. <laughs> you know, the number one thing that that uh, that was more evident to me than anything else in terms of you know me being able to take advantage of opportunities that were um, made aware to me, right? Just that they're even there is that someone took the time just to take a chance on me. And my career, what I'm doing is being intentional about taking the time to take a chance with someone just, just to explain, here are the opportunities that are out there. And maybe there's a way for us to make that your opportunity, right? So that you don't feel alone. You don't feel like you have to find a way to scrape your way to the top but to know that someone is here that cares, that really does have an interest in you and wants to see you succeed. That feeling, I think, is that's enough to, to help to just build that bridge gradually um, so that others can, can you know, walk in those shoes and, and surpass me. Amazing. I, it's, I'm, I've, I've got goose pimples. Uh, I, 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 the, hair on the back of my neck, the whole nine yards. 
Dr. Trivia Fraser, wow. Thank you for, for, for spending an hour with me, for sharing your life story. Dr. Trivia Fraser is the founder and CEO of Abtala Sciences. You can find more information at abtalasciences.com. They have a social media presence at LinkedIn at Abtala Sciences. Uh, what an amazing uh, work and job. I will definitely bring you back if you don't mind, because I would love to hear a little bit more of the nitty gritty of the work that you do inside the lab. Uh, and I definitely want to talk more about the inspiration that you are, not only to me, and I know that to committees that you and I sit on together, uh, but then also uh, uh, in New Orleans and, and around the country, uh, uh, as we do not see, and we need to, and this is part of this medical reparations, we need to see more uh, female, black female uh, scientists and engineers who are also CEOs of their of their companies. So thank you so much for spending the time with me. Thank you. Thank you so very much. 